This evening, as we turn to God's holy word, we're going to be reading from two places in Scripture. So you might want to keep uh, a bookmark maybe in both chapters. But to, to start off, we're going to start with Hebrews 6. Well, we're going to be continuing in, in our Hebrews series. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13, we'll read through the end of the chapter. And then we're going to go to Genesis 15. So Hebrews chapter 6 starting at verse 13. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, where we'll be reading the whole chapter. Genesis 15. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment 
on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet complete, is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we read of how you made covenants, you made promises, and Lord, because you made them, we know they will happen. And Lord, may we have patience. When we seem troubled with the times, may we have patience. For you have promised that you are God, you are in control. Be with Pastor Mark as he preaches and teaches us on these things, that we may hear your word through him. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how do we look for assurance in the big decisions of our lives? We hunt for the money-back guarantees. We look for those extended warranties. We buy the insurance. We get duped into the Apple Care. But what do we do when we're faced with our eternal salvation? Humanity tends to search out wisdom from philosophy. We, we seek the advice of the experts from the various world religions out there, from science and so on and so forth. When things get tough, we tend to look for answers on our terms. We turn to things like family and friends. We turn to traditions. We turn to current trends. In our passage, we see that these suffering Hebrew Christians are beginning to doubt God's promises in light of the various hardships that they are facing from leaving Judaism. The fact of the matter is that God has sworn by himself to deliver his promises to his people. There's nothing greater by which to swear by. And tonight we are going to see that because God has sworn by himself and delivered us in Christ, we can have assurance and hope of salvation in this life. And to do this, we're going to be looking at three things. First, we're going to be looking at God's promise. Second, we're going to be looking at God's pledge. And third, we are going to be looking at God's priest. Again, that's God's promise, God's pledge, and God's priest. So with that, let's get started by taking a look at our first point this evening, God's promise. So as we come to our sermon text, we have to remember that we are picking up from where we left off a couple weeks ago. The writer of this letter has been painstakingly laying out the case for why Jesus is better than anything Judaism ever has to offer. We know that Jesus is the better prophet. We know that he's the eternally begotten son of God. We know that he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. That he's better than Moses, and so on and so forth. And we also know that the writer has just called out some in their number for their lack of growth in this message that he's been delivering to them. They've become dull of hearing. And they're having to be taught the basics over and over and over again due to their lack of maturity. 
But afterwards, our writer brings these these hurting souls back to the truth that God sees their work and, and their love for himself and for the saints. And he brings them back to the gospel. So it's with this in mind now that the writer goes all the way back in God's covenant of grace to that great patriarch of these struggling Hebrew Christians, Abraham, and begins once more to teach of the greatness of Jesus Christ and God's promises to his people. We read in Hebrews, starting at verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The question for all of us this evening then is, what is this promise with Abraham that this writer is speaking about? For that, we turn back to our Genesis 15 passage, where from there we, we read of this problem of unfulfilled promises. Here we see Abram, not yet Abraham, smacked in the face with the reality of his present situation. After all this waiting and sojourning, Abram is left with what he perceives to be empty promises from God. This great and almighty God, whom in Genesis 12 had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of his father's house and promised to make him a great nation, to, to bless him and to make his name great, to bless those who bless him and cause those who and curse those who dishonor him, to make him the means by which all of the families of the earth will be blessed. We have to also see this in light of God's covenant promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 where we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is, is, is often referred to as the Proto-Euangelion or the first gospel and it tells of the coming Messiah, the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of Satan and set everything right again. It has been many generations since, since God has given our first parents this promise. And since then, humanity has, has endured Cain and Abel. They've witnessed the birth of Seth. They've experienced the great flood with Noah and his ark. They, they saw the Tower of Babel. And humanity still has not yet seen this awaited offspring of the woman. This is the context in which Abram was hearing these promises of God back in Genesis 12. There's only one problem. Abram is now advanced in years and he has no son. Take a look with me here in Genesis 15 at verses 2 and 3. We read, But, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God is telling Abram that, that he himself is going to be his shield, and that his reward is not just going to be great, but it's going to be very great in verse 1. And what's Abram's, Abram's response? So what? I've got no one to pass it on to. He has no biological son. He's passing everything he has to this guy named Eliezer of Damascus. Or better yet, we should read this as Eliezer, not of Abram. And while he does have great possessions, he has flocks, he has herds, and he has servants, we see in verse 8 that he still doesn't have possession of the land. When is all of this supposed to happen? 
How is all of this supposed to happen? Hasn't Abram waited long enough? If we're honest with ourselves, isn't this where we often find ourselves today? When was the last time you looked at the current state of affairs and doubted the promises of God? When was the last time you were ostracized by family or friends or coworkers for holding to God's truth and you felt those doubtful questions rise up in the back of your head? Wouldn't it be easier if? We want, we want Jesus. We, we want to see his promises fulfilled. And we want to experience perfection now, don't we? But as we continue in our passage, we see how God deals with Abram's questions which brings us to the restated promises of God. As we continue in Genesis 15, we see God in an amazing act of condescension. Here's the plea of Abram and gracefully responds with this this recapitulation, this, this restatement of the promises he gave him earlier in chapter 12. God tells Abram once again here in verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, Your very own son shall be your heir. God tells Abram that Eliezer of Damascus will not be his heir, but his own flesh and blood is going to inherit everything. God then takes Abram outside for a little stargazing. In verse 5, he tells him to look at the stars and number them. He says to Abram, so shall your offspring be. Not only is Abram going to have a son opening the door up to the promised seed of the woman that we read about in in Genesis 3.15, but God is also opening up the fulfillment of Abram uh, becoming the father of nations that he told him about in Genesis chapter 12. And what do we see here in verse 6? It says, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. But what does it mean that God counted it to Abram as righteousness? Well, if we look at Romans 4, verses 20 to 22, it tells us that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God then reiterates himself concerning the blessing of the land in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So it's not only Abram, you're going to have a son. Not only Abram, you're going to be the father of a great nation. But you're also going to receive the land. God is making good on every promise he laid out for Abram all those years ago. And so much more. As we continue to look at our passage, we see an additional promise of great possessions for Abram's descendants in verse 14, though it will be after a 400-year period of affliction. And God also tells Abram in verse 15 that he is going to die in peace and go to his fathers in a good old age. This God of promise is laying it all out there for Abram. And Abram totally believes him and is seen through the New Testament eyes of Romans chapter 4. But this time, God goes about his promise in an entirely new way, which brings us to our second point this evening, God's pledge. In verses 16 through 17 of our Hebrews text, we read, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. 
So now as we look back at our Genesis passage, let's fill this out a little bit more. As we look at a path, the path of the Almighty, the path of the Almighty. So we have this problem of seemingly unfulfilled promises, whereby all accounts, God's promises look like they're not going to be carried out. We have seen God's restatement of his promises, his emphatic doubling down on these good things that he has promised to Abram. And now we come to God's pledge as seen in this path of the Almighty. So one of the things that should strike us is the fact that Almighty God is even having this conversation with, with Abram, a sinful human being in the first place. Think about that for a minute. Who, who is answering the questions of this lost Abram? Who's, who's answering, oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, and oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Referring to the land. It's the same God that spoke the world into existence 14 chapters earlier in Genesis. Can you feel the weight of that? The very fact that Abram has this kind of relationship with the God of the universe, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? This, this is our great God. And then he has the audacity to question him further. He complains that God isn't coming through on his end of the deal. But God... In, in, in his loving graciousness, doesn't smite Abram here in his sin-stained doubt. Rather, he restates his promises to Abram. And then he backs it up with a covenant. Almighty God turns to Abram here in verse 9, and he tells him to go and get some animals, a very specific set of animals. A heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And Abram gathers these animals together and God tells him to cut them in half except for the birds and to lay the halves opposite one another forming this path. And then God tells Abram to drive away the birds of prey. He's telling him to to get rid of the vultures and the ravens and the buzzards and all these things that would come down to feed on these carcasses which we read that Abram did. Now before we can really understand what is actually taking place next we, we need to get a little background information in, into the ancient Near East. This was the setting of a covenant-making ceremony. In, in the Hebrew language, you, you don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant, just like Abram did. Animals would, would be cut in half and laid opposite of each other, and then an agreement would be made between someone called a suzerain, who's this great king, and a vassal, who's this lesser king. They would, they would talk about this great king. They would give this flattering historical account of what this great king has done for this lesser king. They would then lay out the terms of their agreement of the two parties. It'd be something along the lines of, you know, uh, the, this lesser king is going to serve this greater king, and this greater king is going to protect this lesser king. So they'd have this agreement. They'd have it documented. They'd place it in their temple in front for their to be reread in front of their deity and to be witnessed by by their god or gods depending on what people group we're talking about and then there would be blessings and curses assigned for covenant obedience and disobedience the two parties would then walk this path through the halves of these animals this, this bloody path which told the witnesses everybody that was there both human and divine in their eyes If I go back on my word, may this be done to me. This gruesome act is is what it was to make or or, or to cut 
a covenant. It's this blood-bound oath between two parties. So, so knowing that, we go back to our story. And Abram has these, these pieces cut, and he's, he's shooing the scavengers off these carcasses. And they're, they're ready to get these things going. And what do we read next? In verse 12, where do we see our father of the faith? It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Abram, the human in this, is asleep. But again, our, our story graciously continues. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for, their, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God says, I'm going to make you an offer that you can take to the bank because I am going to back this covenant, this blood-bound agreement in the best possible way. I'm going to back it with myself. So when the sun had gone down, when it was dark, God, the same God who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power, traversed this bloody path as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Through these pieces, and made a covenant with Abram, effectively taking on all of those covenant obligations solely upon himself in a wholly one-sided covenant grant, saying, if this fails, may all this be done to me. And with this, verses 18 through 21 tells us that God made a covenant with Abram, guaranteeing him a son, a people, by which all the nations will be blessed, and a land. So why does this matter today? You may be sitting here this evening asking yourself why we're talking about some guy who lived thousands of years ago in the Middle East and how God made a bloody covenant with him somewhere out in the wilderness. What does this have to do with us in the here and now? Brothers and sisters, this has everything to do with us in the here and now when we see how this episode plays out in redemptive history. Abram, now called Abraham because he is the father of a multitude of nations, has this promised son Isaac the Jewish people come into being after spending 400 years in Egypt. They return to the land. They're given the law to have a right relationship with this covenant-keeping God. And when they fail to obey it, the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head, is born of Abraham's line. It's Jesus Christ himself. And he came and lived the perfect life of obedience, both in perfectly obeying the law and in suffering according to God the Father's will by dying that horrible, bloody death on the cross for your sins and my sins, paying for these very same covenant obligations. But you just said Abraham's line, didn't you? 
I'm not Jewish. How does this affect me? We have to remember that the covenant made with Abraham was so gracious that, that, that it was even going to bless the nations. Why was Abraham saved? It was because, as we see in verse 6, he believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. This is fleshed out even more for us as we look at what the Apostle Paul tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit concerning this event through the New Testament lens of Romans 4, 13 through 25, which shows us that we who share Abraham's faith are considered his children and may rest on this wonderfully one-sided grace and salvation. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 tells us, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we who believe in Jesus Christ are the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. And we can have assurance of our justification, assurance of God's declaration of our righteousness in Christ, even today, because of what took place all the way back then. This is why we read in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has given us his unchangeable promise and God has backed this promise with an unchangeable oath. This is why these struggling Hebrew Christians should not be tempted to go back to a Judaism that cannot save. They have something so much better in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our final point this evening, God's priest. Now that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews has thoroughly rooted salvation in God and his promises and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he goes right back to, to this notion of hope for these struggling Hebrew believers. Verse 19, we read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The, the hope that Christian have is, is that God has accomplished salvation for his people. It was God who went through the path of those animals while Abraham slept, accepting the terms of the covenant, just as it was God who bore the punishment of our sins on the cross at Calvary, when we failed to hold up our end of the, those very, the, the end of those very same covenant obligations, this is the reason why sinful human beings can enter into the place behind the curtain, into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, because God Himself has opened the way for them to do it. They can only do this because of their great High Priest who went before them, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Their hope is pinned on him who has entered the heavenly sanctuary before them. It's as one theologian says in his commentary, an anchor lies unseen at the bottom of the sea. Our hope lies unseen in the highest heaven. For in this hope we were saved, writes Paul, but hope that is seen is no hope at all, as can be read in Romans 8.24. Our anchor of hope has absolute security in that Jesus in human form 
now glorified, has entered heaven. And he has entered heaven in his humanity as a guarantee that we too shall be with him. He goes ahead and we follow. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven this very moment, coupled with the fact that God himself guaranteed his covenant with his people, should instill a great hope in the people of God when facing the various trials and doubts of this life. This anchor is is what keeps us from drifting away, as we read about all the way back in Hebrews 2, where we read, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's all kinds of nautical themes in the books of, book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And in his high priestly office, he goes into the inner place behind the curtain before us. Just as the high priest did back in Leviticus 16 during the Day of Atonement. He's also the one to tear the curtain down at his death from top to bottom, opening the way for those who believe in him. And his priesthood is forever. He does not die. He he does not only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. He is always there interceding, praying on behalf of his people before the Father. What comfort it is to know these great truths and to have these great promises. So what does all this mean for us here this evening, Little Farms? It means the same thing for us as it meant for those struggling Hebrew Christians means that Almighty God has entered into a covenant with his people, and he guaranteed that covenant with himself, upon which there is nothing greater to swear by. It means that those who believe in Jesus Christ can rest assured in their salvation. You don't have to doubt. So where are you at? Is your faith resting in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for you on the cross? Or are you doubting the promises of God? Does it seem like God has forgotten you like, or, or like he has fallen through on his end of the deal? Are you trying to work your way to salvation, forgetting that God alone has passed through the path between those animal halves? You have to remember that Abram couldn't even stay awake to continue chasing away the buzzards. No amount of to-do lists, committees, giving, or personal sacrifice will help you when it comes to your eternal salvation. So turn to Jesus the one who paid it all, the one who conquered the grave, the one who ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he's making intercession for us today, and the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let us put our faith in him, trusting as Abraham did, even in the face of 400 years of affliction, that he will finish the work that he started all those years ago. Just like Abraham, we can trust God's promises because they are guaranteed in Jesus Christ, and we can look forward in glorious expectation of the life to come. May God grant it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that you are. We thank you for the steadfast love you have shown your people ever since the garden, even unto today. We praise you for the great salvation that you have worked in the life of your people through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and great high priest. We praise you for your great promise and oath that you took all the way back with our father Abraham. And we praise you for the hope and assurance that we can enjoy today because of it. Help us to never doubt your goodness to us and help us to always know of the great hope that we have in Christ. 
Help us to also share of your great story of redemption and this great salvation that has been given to us with those around us in this coming week. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.